Come back pussycat. My uncle Arthur was not a very nice man. He was rude, sly, mean-spirited, miserly and reputedly rich. He had no time for his relatives and because of his attitude they, with one exception, had no time for him. The one exception was me for I have always known, instinctively, which side my bread was buttered on, and at a very early age I guess that I could be on a very good thing by keeping in with Uncle Arthur. I suppose I was about 10 years of age when I first met him. He called at my house one day when my mother was giving a family party and although she let him in he was cold-shouldered by the rest of them and he stood alone in a corner holding a rapidly cooling cup of tea and wearing a sneer. It was then that I, running through the gathering, tripped and fell clutching at his legs to save myself hitting my head on the wall. Of course I put him off balance and he took the opportunity to spill his tea into the bosom of Aunt Aggie's dress. She shrieked and sprang up and in her turn tripped and fell against the tea trolley. That shot across the room and hit grandmother who was drenched by its contents. Her yells of rage added to the uproar and I decided to make myself scarce before someone fastened the cause of the accident on me, and started taking it out on me. However, before I could get through the French windows Aunt Aggie had got to her feet, gripped me by the arm and started to belabor me over the head with her handbag. My bellows of pain, rather put on for effect, came to an end when Uncle Arthur took the bag from her, pushed her into a chair and shouted for her and the rest of them to quieten down. It's all an unfortunate accident, caused by silly Aggie here suddenly jumping up, without taking care, and tripping herself up. Let's stop shouting at each other and help tidy up. You my lad, pushing me towards the door, get some towels and a mop. Thankfully I sped off on the errand and when I returned fully laden there was a different atmosphere, they were laughing and joking with each other, but still ignoring Uncle Arthur. When I had handed the towels round and handed the mop to my mother I caught his eye and he motioned me into the garden. When we were out of earshot of the house he turned to me. That, my boy, was wonderful. It quite made my day. I hope that old bitty Aggie didn't hurt you? No sir, and I hope I didn't hurt you when I fell over your legs. No lad, and you weren't to blame. It was all Aggie's fault. Here. So saying he pushed a half-crown into my hand and with a say goodbye to your mother for me walked off to the gate and his car which was parked in the road outside. I showed the half-crown to my mother and she snorted and said, that's the first time he has ever given anything away, and I don't doubt it will be the last. However, it wasn't. That Christmas I got a large Hornby train set and on my birthday, in April, a fine new fishing rod. I never got any more presents but from that time on I made it my business never to miss his birthday and I always remembered him at Christmas. In later years when I was studying and working in London I made regular trips to see him at the seedy, furnished flat that he rented in Maida Vale. As far as I know no one else ever went to see him, no one liked him enough, and he was never anything but rude to me and always did his best to make me feel unwelcome. He had some nasty little tricks, for example, I can't stand sweet sherry and always used to take a bottle of good fino with me but he never opened them when I was there. Instead he used to get a decanter of some ultra-sweet muck, which he made me drink by the half-pint, standing over me while I gagged it down while seeming to appear that I was enjoying it. I was not a good actor and I could assure you that I did not fool him a bit, but he would put on an act too and with an expression of gratification at my pleasure he would pour me another half-pint. You ask why I put up with this, why I put myself into such a humiliating position? Well the simple answer was that I had an expectation and was taking a gamble that it would be fulfilled. Mark you it was a gamble, he could easily have left his money to a cat's home, but he didn't. When he died he made me his sole heir. He left me everything, the lot and I mean the lot. In various bank accounts there was a total of about £550,000. There were also stocks and shares that bought in another £25,000 a year. In addition I found that he had left a cottage on the Devon Dorset border. 
As I have said he lived in rented accommodation so with the exception of the contents there was nothing to interest me there. The contents of the flat weren't up to much either, a few good pieces of glass and some fine antique table silver. The rest of it was junk and I gave it to the local salesroom, together it raised around 50 pounds. There was no sign of all the fine sherry I'd taken him so I suppose he must have drunk it after all keeping his sweet muck for visitors. Still I had no need to worry about that, being nice to Uncle Arthur had paid off handsomely. I gave up my post in the city, of course, being determined to retire to the country and live quietly while launching on a career as an author. I have always known that I had a gift for writing, but till then I had always been hampered by the need to earn a living. Now I could indulge myself. After making financial arrangements I set off in my car to the cottage. I had directions from the lawyers and more or less drove directly to it reaching there towards the end of a fine summer afternoon. Kin Cottage lies about one mile on the seaward side of Wincombe, a small village on the edge of the Downs. It's tucked in on the right side of the road and looks out over the sea, while it is protected on its back and sides by the little valley in which it nestles. I had the keys and went inside. It was in a shocking state, dirt and dust lay everywhere and what furniture there was, was rickety and broken. There were large holes in some of the walls and lots of plaster had fallen from the ceilings. Obviously I was not going to be able to live there until the place had been renovated and furnished. I locked up and went back to Wincombe where I booked into the pub, the Protestant Duke, named I was told, repeatedly, after Monmouth. Through the landlord I met Mr. Hubbard, a builder, and as soon as we had agreed a price between us he put the necessary work in hand, and when I was not away ordering various fitments and furnishings I was there keeping an eye on things. It was on one of these occasions that I decided on some structural alterations. The cottage had two bedrooms and a bathroom opening off a large upstairs landing and a sitting room, dining room, kitchen and one smaller room opening off a wide stone flagged hall. The smaller room had been used as a junk room and that did not suit me at all. I wanted to use it as a study but if I did there would be no storage space for cases and things. This was a problem and it seemed to me that it would be a good idea if we used the internal space to its fullest advantage for it was obvious that there was a large amount of unused space between the upper floor ceilings and the roof. Surely, I said to Hubbard, there is room up there for an attic. In fact I can't see why there isn't one. What do you think, can we put one in? He stood looking at the ceilings and considering the matter, but before he could answer me one of his workmen, an aged plasterer, who was working in the main bedroom, let out a great cry of don't you do nothing of the sort. He actually spoke in his country dialect but I will make no attempt to repeat it. Do what? I asked. Open up the ceiling, that's what. There'll be terrible trouble if you do. Surely you know that. You do don't you Mr. Hubbard? Hubbard looked a bit bashful but before he could answer I took the matter up with the old fool of a plasterer. What trouble? What on earth are you talking about? He looked at me pityingly and then said, what's the place called? Why kin cottage? Yes and what does the kin mean? Why relations, relatives, members of one's family? No it don't, he said scornfully. It's short for Grimalkin, see. Grimalkin? Yes it's named after the old witch's cat. Its proper name is Grimalkin's Cottage and if you take that ceiling down or open it up something dreadful will happen. Feeling rather bemused I turned to Hubbard for an explanation. It's true the old name is Grimalkin's Cottage, but for a long time now, at least 200 years as far as I can judge it has been known as Kin Cottage. Alright, but what about a witch? Oh that's just a folk story dating back to Cromwell's time. Here the old man grunted and growled, it ain't a story. It's true, we all know it's true. Hubbard hushed him up and continued. An old woman lived here, evidently with her cat, Grimalkin. 
the locals all said she was a witch and persecuted her to such an extent that she was forced to leave. In fact she got out just before she could be arrested and tried for witchcraft, however before she left she put a curse on the neighborhood and is reputed to have said that the curse would remain ineffective as long as the upper part of the house remained sealed. One chap in Victorian times opened it up. Like you he wanted a loft, but he soon sealed it up again. Why? He was haunted by a cat. His wife and family lived their days and nights in terror. His cattle and sheep, this was a small holding then, were attacked and either dried up or died and he was brought to the brink of ruin. He finally closed up the ceiling again, sold up and left. The old fool of a plasterer had edged up close and I was startled when he said, Well mister, what are you going to do? I drew myself up to my full height and looked Hubbard in the eye. Open it up and if the cat appears I'll make a pet out of it. It will be my very own house cat. You'll regret it, said the old plasterer rather dolefully. Do it, I said. Very well, sir, Hubbard replied and it was done right then and there. The opening was made in the middle of the landing ceiling and it was soon apparent that a trapdoor had fitted there previously for a rectangular hole some three by four bordered by an oak frame was revealed. When the plaster dust had subsided I called for a ladder, got a torch from my car and went up while the old plasterer waited unhappily below. To my delight I saw that the attic had been boarded over. That will save money, I said aloud as I shone the torch around. At first glance the whole of the area seemed to be empty, but then I saw that this was not so, for over on the far side there was a dust and cobweb covered object. With some trepidation I moved off the ladder and gingerly stepped on the boards. They were all very solid and there was only an occasional squeak as I walked over to the object. It was a box. I could not see it all that clearly in the light of my torch but it was of wood, dark wood and measured about three by three and a half by one and a half in size with what seemed to be a carving on the lid. I looked for a fastening or a catch but could not find one. I put my hand on a corner and pulled. It moved easily and a cloud of dust arose causing me to cough and splutter. Are you alright? Asked Albert who had come up the ladder. Yes, what do you think of this? Well my job's almost done isn't it? All I need to do is fix the trap and install a light and a ladder. Yes, but I meant this. I replied indicating the box. I'd say that looks old, as an antique it could be valuable. I'd like to get it down so that we can get a good look at it, can your men help? He went to the top of the ladder and called a couple of his men up, needless to say the old plasterer was not one. After brushing the dust off we lifted the box between us. It was not as heavy as I had anticipated although it weighed enough and there was something in it, for it rattled as we carried it over to the trap and lowered it down the ladder. I directed that it should be carried out into the open and when it had been placed on the front lawn we stood back and examined it in detail. It was made of oak, that much I could see, old, dark wood that reeked of the ages. There was a lid for you could see where it joined to the body of the box but there was no sign of either hinges or catch. In the center of the lid there was a carving. It was a roundel raised above the flat surface and carried a lifelike representation of a cat lying curled up and asleep, but there was something odd about it because it was lying at an angle with the head higher than the tail. What was it lying on? I peered closer and traced the object with my forefinger as Hubbard leaned forward in interest. We both spoke together, it's a spinning wheel. A real howl of terror came from behind us. Oh my god! Squealed the old plasterer, put it back, put it back please afore something terrible happens. Shut up you silly old fool. What is there to be frightened of? It's only a wooden box after all. I turned back to my examination of the carving as he wailed on. Its position and formation suggested that it could be separate to the main body of the box and I put both my hands on it to see if I could wriggle it or move it in any way. It did move. 
I found that under pressure it rotated slightly and so I kept alternating the pressure from left to right. Suddenly it turned a full half circle to the left with a resounding click and gripping the two to corners nearest to me I found I could lift the lid easily. There were no hinges. The lid seemed to be on rollers but I was not interested in them, my attention was fully taken by the object lying on its side in the box. It was a spinning wheel and on it a cushion that in its turn supported the mummified body of a large cat. Hubbard looked into the box and turned to me in horror. Before he could say more than, than the old tales. I silenced him with our a lot of eye wash, Mr. Hubbard. This box is a find, isn't it? And closed and secured the lid. Don't say anything, I whispered. You will only upset your workmen. He nodded and turning to them told them to get on with their work. The box remained where it was until Hubbard's men left at the end of the day and then I got him to help me carry it back into the cottage where we placed it gently in the newly decorated sitting room. When Hubbard had gone I opened the box again and very gently lifted out the cushion, placing it and the cat in small cardboard box. When I had finished I closed and secured the lid again. I knew that cats had sometimes been walled up when cottages were built out of cruel superstition, but this seemed to be the respectful innerman of a beloved pet. I therefore took the cardboard box out into the garden and after some thought dug a hole under a rose bush near the porch and buried it. I could not help feeling very sorry for that poor cat. Rest well, pussycat, I whispered softly. It took another two weeks to finish the cottage and for me to move in. During that time I had been able to confirm that not only was the spinning wheel in first-class condition but that, apart from a few necessary small repairs, it was also in perfect working order. I decided that it would look well set up in a corner of my sitting room where it added some old world charm. The box itself I put in the hall, on a wide ledge that was built into the wall on the left, just inside the door. It was an unusual piece and when polished up looked every inch a fine antique. Strangely enough I had no fear that the box or the spinning wool would be stolen for I had the idea that the story of their finding, plus the reputation the cottage undoubtedly had, would be enough to deter any would-be thief. So I had no hesitation in putting them on show. I actually took up residence in Kin Cottage on the last day of May, a wonderful, golden, warm day and a milestone in my life. I was rich, I had a comfortable home and I could now get on and write. I had made arrangements with a jobbing gardener to care of the fairly large garden and with a Mrs. Weston, a local widow, of much my own age, who was to come in daily to clean and cook for me. So my needs were, therefore, attended to and I was fully my own master. The first two weeks I spent exploring the neighborhood, and as I walked I thought over the plot of my book, making the odd note or so as I went. In the evening I would sit in my study, at my desk, a good old solid leather top I had picked up at a sale in Bridport, and write my notes up. On one such evening I glanced up through the window and out onto the small orchard, which was at the side of the cottage, and at once my attention was drawn to a cat. He was lying full length along the lower branch of an apple tree, sideways to me, with his head higher than his tail and he seemed to be asleep. The setting sun reflected golden light from his glossy ginger coat and he looked a really fine specimen. He was a monster, being without doubt the largest cat I had ever seen, over half as large again as the ordinary domestic cat. It occurred to me that he might be a wild cat or one of a species that had escaped from a zoo or a game park. With this in mind I left my study and went out to take a closer look. There was no sign of him. He was not in the tree or anywhere else in the garden. I called and made cat attracting sounds for the next 10 minutes or so, looking carefully over my own land and the nearby fields as I did so, but he had gone. I went inside with a feeling of disappointment and a sense of loss. The following Sunday was a hot, humid, overcast day and plainly there was going to be a storm. The clouds, that had been building up all day, reached their peak about tea time. The atmosphere, 
which had been becoming more gloomy as time went on, was suddenly full of foreboding and then the temperature fell several degrees leaving me shaking. I was so cold that I decided to light the log fire, which was already late in the grate, and once the flames had caught, I went out to the kitchen and made a pot of tea. This took some five minutes or so and when all was done I went back into the sitting room and after putting the tray on the low table by my chair, turned to the fire and had the shock of my life. There on the hearth was the great, golden, ginger cat, curled up and asleep. As I stared in amazement he opened one eye, looked at me for a few seconds and winked. He then opened both eyes and regarded me steadily, the point of his tongue protruding slightly comically from the right side of his mouth. I crouched down on my haunches, his eyes following my every move. Hello puss. How did you get in? You are a nice chap, aren't you? I asked as though a reply was possible. The cat, obviously concluding from my attitude that I was friendly, distinctly began to purr. I had an idea, some milk of course. All cats liked milk and I'd get him some. I had the idea, you see of adopting him if he was feral. Little did I know, or even guess, the true position. Off to the kitchen I went again, and there filled a pudding bowl with milk. Taking it back I put it down near his head. He looked at it and then turned back to me. Go on boy, drink it up, I said in as gentle a voice as I could end, to give further proof of my good intentions, stretched out a careful hand to pat him. My hand went straight through him onto the stone hearth. I fell back on my rear, he winked again and then was no longer there. Getting up I resisted an impulse to scream, yell and run hurriedly out into the storm. Ignoring my tea I went over to the sideboard and had two quick brandies. These did no touch the side so I poured a third and larger one and going to the center of the room said out loud, I know you, my lad. You're Grimalkin, aren't you? The chill deepened, there was a flash of lightning and a roll of thunder overhead, and he was suddenly back on the hearth. I sat in my chair and we looked at each other for about ten minutes and then he slowly disappeared just like the cat in Alice, he gradually faded away tail first and all the while the great amber eyes stared at me unwinkingly. From that time on he was a constant visitor and I never lost a sense of proud possession that filled me when I saw him on the hearth, in the apple tree or most often by the rose bush where I believe I had buried him. At these times though I had to be very careful, because I soon found that I was the only person who could see him and it would not have done at all for me to be found talking to myself or putting my hand down to nothing. For although I could not touch him I discovered that he seemed to like it if I put my hand down almost to him. When I did so he would roll over onto his back with his paws in the air as though waiting for his stomach to be tickled. At this time our relationship was a wholly delightful one and I was hard put to it to remember that he was not flesh and blood and could vanish at will, which he always did if there was any other person nearby. It was at the end of July that I discovered that he was capable of giving more than friendly companionship, it happened like this. A month or so earlier I had decided that I would keep chickens, using the small orchard for the purpose. I had built a chicken house in a sheltered corner and fenced the whole area so that the fowls would be able to range over the whole of the orchard so giving, I hoped, good, wholesome, free-range eggs. I did the work myself, with the help of my jobbing gardener, and I was proud of the result, as I had not done anything like it before. After I had introduced my first two dozen hens I was sure the scheme would be a success and indeed it was at first. After a little while my morning and evening egg forays started to yield results and I was soon getting enough for my needs and then, Three weeks later, disaster struck. Something was getting at the eggs, not only in sheltered spots in the open, where this could be expected, but also in the nesting boxes. Time after time I found that the eggs were broken and cleaned out or had been removed from the boxes and broken on the earth. I sought the advice of my jobbing gardener, who took one look and grunted its rats, sir, and suggested traps and poison. Well we tried both. 
we traced their runs and put traps in them, which were sprung without result. We put poison in the mouths of the rat holes and that was kicked out. I bought an air rifle and sat up in a tree hoping to be able to shoot them, once more with no result. Then early one morning I went out to the hen house and found that there was not a single egg left untouched and that was just too much. I really lost my temper and asked aloud if there was anything at all that could be done to check those damned rats. I was still cursing when I stepped out of the hen house. I turned and fastened the door and as I did so raised my head and saw the cat lying full length along the roof. He looked at me expectantly and on impulse I said, well old chap, can you do anything? Slowly he winked one large amber eye and disappeared, as usual tail first. I was convinced that something would be done and spent the day looking for something untoward happening and as nothing did, went to bed very disappointed. The following morning I was up with the lark and out with my basket to the hen house. As quick as magic I collected eight eggs and there were no signs at all of any depredations. I took the eggs to the kitchen going in through the back door, the same way that I had left. Mrs. Weston arrived a little later and after I had had my breakfast I set out for a morning stroll. This time I left by the front door and on opening it stopped dead at what I saw. Laid out in a line on the doorstep were the plump bodies of eight large rats. I stooped down and examined them. All seemed to have been killed by a bite in the back of the neck. They appeared to have been killed by a terrier or, and here I caught up short, a large cat. Even while I thought this, I became aware of his presence and turning round saw him sitting in the middle of the path looking at me in a very thoughtful way and when I said, you did this, didn't you? You are a helpful old chap, he got up, stretched himself and then came up close to me arching his back as though he would rub against me. I could clearly hear him purring. He followed me while I got a spade and stayed with me while I buried the rats in a corner of the garden. I did not want anyone seeing them and commenting. When I had done so I carried on with my walk and he came with me up to the gate, where he sat down inside it as I left for my stroll. It seemed to me that he was reluctant to remain, that he really wanted to come with me but was just not able to do so. It also seemed to me that he was a little more substantial in appearance, and as I closed the gate I looked past him towards the cottage and saw Mrs. Weston standing on the doorstep. She was looking towards the gate in a frowning, concentrated way as though she was trying to make up her mind about something. I called out, do you want me? But she smiled, shook her head and went back to the cottage while Grimalkin curled up on the path and seemed to go to sleep. I turned left along the road and walked towards Woolcott Farm meaning to pass through it by the right of way and go right up to the high ground beyond but that was not to be. Woolcott was a brute of a man, hated by his neighbours and feared by those weaker than himself. He was an arrogant bully who did not hesitate to use force on those who opposed him and he did not like people using the right of way. However, I was determined to do so. A right of way is a right of way said I to myself and I for one would not be balked by this pig of a farmer. He'll back down soon enough when he is faced with determination. Anyway I might not meet him. But meet him I did. He was on the other side of the stile, which led to the right of way, and when I put my leg over it, shook his stick at me and told me in no uncertain terms to go to the devil. I must confess he scared me but I stood my ground and told him that I had every right, and intention, of using the right of way. He made no reply to this, just whistled, and up came the biggest, blackest, nastiest Doberman pincher you ever did see. There was no noise from the thing, it just stood in front of me and bared its teeth. The dog's fangs all seemed to be about three inches long and as Woolcott grinned evilly I took the hint and retraced my steps. I turned some ten paces or so away and telling him as firmly as I could that I would report the matter to the police. Snarling he stepped over the stile and calling his dog stepped towards me. I hurried off and they followed me all the way back to my gate. By the time I got there I was almost out of my mind with fright as it was quite clear that he was going to make an issue of the matter and, as a warning to others, maybe a mess of me.
However, I put on as brave a face as I could and as soon as I had got my gate between me and them I faced up to Woolcott and told him I did not take kindly to intimidation. He laughed and pushed the gate open. I slammed it shut again and backed off. Again he pushed it open and hissed get him to his damn dog. As it inched through the gate and gathered itself to spring, I thought my last hour had come especially as in backing off still further I caught my heel in an uneven flagstone in the path and fell sprawling on my back. I brought my hands up in a futile waving attempt to protect my face. The Doberman's throat rumbled with menace and the threatened spring commenced only to be stopped dead as if the thing had hit an invisible barrier. It went back on its haunches, lines of bright blood springing up on its muzzle. Then it arched its spine and twisted its head as though it was trying to get at something on its back, which I could see was being torn and ravaged by some unseen fury as great chunks of skin and hair were being ripped off. Blood was welling up from the terrible wounds and all the time the brute was howling and screaming like a soul in torment. Suddenly it turned tail and shot out of the gate pushing past Wolcott, whose stick raised and cursing, was rushing in at me. He did not reach me. He too was stopped dead in his tracks and he too began to scream as he dropped his stick and raised his hands to his head grasping futilely at something that was tearing his head and face to pieces. So fierce was the attack on him that he staggered and reeled back through the gate and collapsed on the road where he lay moaning feebly. I got up and walked to him and, although what I saw at close quarters sickened me, bent over him to assist if I could. He pushed my helping hand away, painfully raised himself to his feet and wordlessly followed his dog home, staggering from side to side like a blind man, leaving a trail of blood spots behind him. I watched him go and then, still shaken and weak, walked back onto my own property, picking up his stick as I got to it. As I did I saw Grimalkin suddenly appear on the path in front of me. He looked very pleased with himself and as I approached him he arched his back and came towards me in the way cats do when they are about to show affection by rubbing themselves against you. He came right up to me and I could swear that I could feel a slight pressure on my leg from his body. I looked at him more closely and there was no doubt about it, he was more than just a ghost cat. I almost stooped to touch him, indeed I was about to do so, and then glanced up and saw Mrs. Weston at the front door again and caught myself in time. She came towards me as I walked slowly up the path, shock and concern ridden all over her normally calm and friendly face. Are you all right sir? That dreadful man Wolcott and his brute of a dog, I thought you were going to be badly hurt then when they came to the gate. I went in and telephoned the police, they will be here in a minute, how did you fight them off? Was that a large cat I saw in the garden just now? This last was said with a shrewd sideways glance that stopped me dead in my tracks. It was more to be concerned about than that she had sent for the police and that was bad enough. A cat Mrs. Weston? Yes sir, a large cat. You may well have done, I replied thinking quickly. I most certainly have seen cats in the garden sometimes. Why do you ask? She smiled, and it was a very sweet smile. Why it is the cottage I suppose, its history and all that. You know the story I suppose? I said I did and repeated what Hubbard had told me. Oh that's not all. She smiled again and made as to usher me into the house and at that moment the police arrived, damn them. They'd stopped off at Woolcott and the news they brought was not good. There were two of them, a sergeant and a constable. The sergeant did the talking. I understand, sir, that you had some trouble with Mr. Woolcott today, would you like to tell us what happened? We have been to see him and he told us that you suddenly attacked him, but I find that hard to believe when Mrs. Weston's original report is considered. You see he did not mention the dog, and we have seen the dog, like Woolcott, he is in a bad way. I said that I was fully prepared to tell all as I was considering laying charges against Wolcott. I invited them into the house, got them settled and told the whole story, omitting only all reference to Grimalkin. I said that something, 
I knew not what had attacked both Wolcott and his dog and in so doing had certainly saved me from serious injury. Are you sure you don't know what it was? No, I don't know. It was an animal but that's all. Wolcott and his dog had me scared out of my wits. I don't like admitting it but after I fell I hardly knew what was going on. They questioned me for another 15 minutes or so and then left telling me that they would probably want to see me again and asking me to report any strange animals, especially cats, as soon as possible. That creature could kill, sir. Were the sergeant's last words as they walked down the path to the gate. Yes for me, I thought. Aren't I lucky? By then of course I knew that this was true. Grimalkin would do things for me. He had killed the rats. He had protected me from Mr. Wolcott and his dog. In his care I really was a very lucky person. Later that evening, while I was relaxing, in my chair enjoying the warmth of the fire while allowing a couple of brandies to remove the remaining stresses of the day, my eye caught a sudden movement as Grimalkin appeared on the hearth. Thank you my boy, I said saluting him with my glass. You saved my bacon today and no mistake. You are always welcome on my hearth. He looked at me for a few moments his purr reverberating loudly before he got up and walked to the door. I half expected him to walk straight through it but he just stood by it and me out until I got to my feet and opened it. He walked through and then looked back over his shoulder as if to confirm that I was coming. With a shrug I waved him on and followed him into the hall. To my surprise he walked over to his box, to my knowledge he had ignored it since I had buried his mortal remains. He sat in front of it and started pawing at the bottom of one of the short sides. After a while I heard him meowing in obvious frustration so I went over to him and knelt on the floor behind him. It looked like he was pressing on a certain part of the box and I realized that he wasn't solid enough to exert any real force so I leant forward and put my fingertips by his paws then pressed firmly. There was a sudden click and a small hidden drawer popped out. Grimalkin butted his head into my wrist and then jumped up onto the box where he turned round so he was looking down at the drawer. I eased it open and my breath caught as I revealed a flat package of paper neatly folded and sealed. The sealing wax was innocent of any impression. From its size I thought it might be a letter. I pulled it out of its hiding place and carried it carefully into the kitchen. I knew that this might be an important historical discovery and I should take it to a museum so that it could be opened in controlled conditions, but my curiosity was too strong. Anyway, I reasoned, Grimalkin wanted me to find it. I placed a clean tea towel on the kitchen table and placed the package on it. After some thought I took a large kitchen knife and gently levered the wax away. Inside the package there was indeed a letter. It was addressed to Oliver Cromwell, in his role as Lord Protector, and it was Stark. My respected and honoured Lord. I do most humbly remind myself unto you with the certainty that you will recall the promise you made unto me on my dear husband's death and when you confirmed my inheritance of Cathkin Manor and its holdings. As far as my bereavement has allowed I have been happy, but now that happiness has been blighted by a villain you will recall with some distrust. Namely one John Wolcott, a former trooper in your own regiment of horse. That same rogue who your son-in-law, said should be hanged, but who was spared by the plea of clemency by my own dear Edward, God rest him, who was concerned for the villain's sons. Wolcott has harried and oppressed me this last horrible year. He returned home with a gang of ruffians, released from the army and has become a plague. He has stolen my cattle and sheep, pillaged my lands and storehouses and declared that the house and lands are his and he has even taken my husband's sword, that fine Spanish blade you gave him, saying that it was his and had been in his family for years belonging to his grandsire. I am reduced to living at Old Manor Farm, in the house that my brother-in-law's family built. Now my life, as well as my good name, are at risk for he has named me witch and my great cat Cathkin, the same as was so admired by you, as my familiar. He is trying to turn the county against me, ensuring that when I am the victim of his hatred, no soul will speak against it.
he is persuaded that my dear Edward seized a large treasure and hid it for his own gain. I believe this tale to be but a mistling of the chests he carried to safety, so long ago, on your behalf. Please help me my lord and send a trusted man to relieve this situation and restore justice to this part of Dorsetshire. It was signed Lady Hester, but for some reason had never been sent. I carefully folded the letter again and went to wrap it in its cover when I saw that there was some writing on the inside of the sheet. This was obviously more hurried lacking the exquisite penmanship of the letter. S. I have left things too late. Woolcott has killed Cathkin and told me that I will die tonight unless I give him what he wants. I cursed him to his face and he left me laughing. The minister preached this day on Exodus 22:18, and I know that I am the one who he would not suffer to live. I placed the spinning wheel that my dear Edward gave me when we were married in the body of the friend he left me with when he went to war in this box, which I have hidden in the roof as I would have neither fall into Woolcott's profane hands. I have left my letter to General Cromwell here as well as I intend to see him in person, but should I fail, please give it into his hands. Woolcott's men are watching the lane so I will essay the priest's tunnel. May the good Lord grant that we shall meet again. H. I decided to put the letters back into the box for safety while I decided what to do with them. It seemed sensible to start with Mrs. Weston as her oh that's not all seemed to suggest that she knew a lot about the cottage and its history. I determined to get all I could from her, but before I could talk to her in the morning the vicar called. The Reverend John Billinghurst was an amiable soul. A married man in his mid-thirties, with two small sons. He was, I had been told a very learned man, who had a good degree and a vast knowledge of local history. He came straight to the point of his visit. I do not want to cause you concern, but from what I have learned of the history of this place, I feel you could be in for a lot of trouble. The cottage has a very bad reputation according to folk history and recently a local man has been seriously injured, because, so he says, he came to pay a courtesy call on you. You mean Wolcott? I said. He nodded, so thinking I should try to make a friend of him, I asked him in for a cup of tea. Mrs. Weston was in the hall when we entered and they looked speculatively at each other. Then she smiled at him, he gulped and hurried on. I ushered him into the sitting room and invited him to sit down in one of the chairs by the hearth. Mrs. Weston came in with a tray of tea and poured for us. She offered a cup to the vicar and I was surprised to see the hesitation he showed before he accepted it and placed it hurriedly on a nearby side table. She gave a knowing smile, asked me if there was anything else and left. I turned to the vicar and asked him to explain his earlier remarks. What I asked did he mean by a lot of trouble? Did you know that this place is haunted? No. Do please tell me. The story is that some 300 years ago this cottage, and it is basically the same now as it was then, was the home of an old woman, who lived here with her cat, a big ginger tom. She was said to be a wise woman, skilled in the use of herbs and natural remedies. She was good with children and in fact the local children seemed to have loved her and a group of them followed her wherever she went. Her cat was a favorite too and he would join in the children's games chasing their balls and shuttlecocks. But the vicar of the day did not like her because she would not come to his church preferring to spend Sunday sitting quietly by herself, with only her cat for company, reading her missal. She was a Catholic, you see and it was also said of her that she was once the widow of a colonel in Cromwell's new model army. Yes, I said. I know that. You do? He replied and looked astonished. So much so that I thought I could maybe use whatever knowledge he had so I told him what I knew and when he expressed doubt I showed him Lady Hester's letter in the spinning wheel. I did not tell him of the cat in the box, but did draw his attention to the repetition of the name Woolcott and said that I thought that the 17th century one could be the ancestor of the 20th century man. He nodded at that and sat thoughtfully for a few seconds before he replied. 
Yes the Wolcotts have been a local family since Norman times, although they have seemed to have been farm workers until the Civil War when one of them drastically improved the family fortunes and they became one of the prominent local families. I think you should know that Wolcott claims that this property is his and that it has been in his family for centuries and he is now determined to retrieve it. I tend to doubt his claims because Kin Cottage stands on the site of an old Norman fortified manor house which was part of the honour of the de la Garde family. My research shows that Lady Hester's sister married into this family which explains the reference in her letter. Wolcott, who was in his cups, says that there is a great treasure hidden here and he claims that too. He must be mad. I retorted hotly. He could be at that, because he is dangerous and quick to turn to violence, but then you have seen that for yourself. How did the property come to you? I told him of Uncle Arthur and his legacy to me. I gave him details of Uncle Arthur's solicitor and mine and told him that he was at liberty to make any inquiries of them. I quickly penned a note to the effect that I had no objections to them providing him with a copy of Uncle Arthur's will. He was very thankful for that and asked if I minded if he made further historical inquiries. I happily gave him leave to do so. Our talk went on to other matters for a while as the good man asked me if he could rely on my support in various parish projects of his. As I wanted to become an accepted part of the local community I volunteered to help where I could. Soon afterwards he went happily on his way calling out a profound thank you to Mrs. Weston as he left the house. As he left an idea came into my mind. I had to share it with someone and as I wanted to talk to Mrs. Weston, I followed her into the sitting room where she was tidying the tea things. Mrs. Weston, I have decided to get a cat. I almost added another one but held back on that. She looked at me searchingly and then said why? So many people seem to think there is a cat here, a large one. I think I should let them see one they can pet if they wish. That's a good idea, sir. I only hope they try to pat the right one. Why did you say that? Mrs. Weston laughed outright at that. Do you think I don't know about Kafkin? Why I grew up with him or rather with his story. Ah so that's what you meant when you said and that's not all. Yes you found the letter in the spinning wheel chest and you know that Lady Hester intended to ask for help from Cromwell. Well she was an ancestor of mine as well as being my namesake. You see she had a nephew, her sister's son, who was an officer in the new model army and after 1649 he left the army and came home. He married a girl from Christchurch but she would not stay because of the ghosts. Ghosts? Yes two of them, there was a man and a cat, a large cat. Every full moon he could be seen falling through the ceiling of the main bed chamber with terrible injuries to his face. He was followed by a large cat whose claws were the obvious source of the man's injuries. Woolcott and Kathkin, I laughed. Yes, she said, and I hope Kathkin gave him hell. That's possible, he's capable of it, and I told her about the rats. I was not surprised when she told me that she knew of the incident. You said this place was haunted by Woolcott as well as Kathkin, but I have only seen the latter and as far as I'm concerned he's more than welcome. The nephew, arranged for a travelling priest to perform an exorcism and from that day Wolcott's ghost hasn't been seen. And Kathkin? The local story is that he was banished until such a time as he was needed to protect the cottage or one of Lady Hester's kin called to him. I'm surprised that the cottage is still standing in such good condition, with the local reputation that it has. Although very few of the owners have lived here over the centuries, most of them have been moved to maintain it. Several of the, many, versions of the tale suggest that Lady Hester's curse moves people to look after the cottage. I find stories of a curse hard to accept. They don't really have a place in our modern world. Mrs. Weston paused to pick up the tea tray and I knew that she wasn't going to say much more, I'm not too sure we should just dismiss everything out of hand. Why not? In Victoria's day the owner of the cottage was simple, having been kicked in the head by a horse. 
one of Wolcott's descendants tricked him into selling Kin Cottage for a few pennies. He then set up a small holding and began to search for the Wolcott treasure. The story goes that he was haunted by a demon in feline form and was driven off the land, eventually giving the rightful owner the property back before fleeing from the village. That does seem rather fanciful to me, but I have to admit that before I came here I would have poured scorn on anyone who claimed to have seen a ghost. You will accept the idea of a ghost, but not a curse. Is it just because you've seen Kathkin and have to believe in him or doubt your own sanity? Mrs. Weston, you have me there. I smiled as I replied, but had to admit that her jab contained more than a shred of truth. I've been told that Lady Hester was skilled with herbal remedies. I presume that these were twisted by Wolcott into allegations of witchcraft? That's right, sir, but according to one of the local legends there was witchery involved. One of the local legends? There are two basic versions of local history covering the events of the Civil War and afterwards, the Wolcott version, which is the most common, probably because they triumphed, and my family's. Oh there are others but they tend to be versions of the two rival histories. I already knew that the Wolcott version accused Lady Hester of witchcraft. I was puzzled as I couldn't understand what Mrs. Weston was trying to tell me. That's the reverse of the truth. Mrs. Weston sounded indignant and I reminded myself that she was Lady Hester's descendant. Wolcott had a cunning man. A cunning man? The capitals had been explicit in her voice. Traditionally they were men who were versed in the magical arts, and I believe most of them understood basic herbalism. However, in some parts of the country they got an evil reputation as they dabbled in darker magics. So Wolcott was one of these warlocks? No sir, the story is that when he was campaigning in East Anglia, his patrol was tasked with arresting some royalist sympathizers and discouraging other support. In fact they used their orders as an excuse to loot what they wanted, murdering anyone who protested. In one local village they heard of a miser living near the village and Wolcott went to see him. Somehow the old man persuaded Wolcott to spare him. Soon after this Wolcott's brutality came to light and he was tried and sentenced to death. Ironically Lady Hester's husband pleaded for mercy. However, Wolcott was dismissed. Sometime later Wolcott came back to the village. With him were a few ex-soldiers and an old man. This was the cunning man you think? Yes sir. How else do you explain the fact that a farm laborer returns from the wars and within weeks has moved into the largest property in the village dispossessing the widow of the rightful owner? And he does this without anyone questioning it? It does seem odd, I'll admit. It is that. Now, sir, my work won't do itself. With those words of wisdom she swept from the room. The next day I set out to get a kitten. Obviously I could not get one in the local area, I had to go further afield. So I tried Bridport and when I had no luck there I made my way to Dorchester and then Wareham. No matter where I went there was nothing doing and I set off home empty-handed. It was raining hard and by the time I reached home there was a raging storm and I had to drive with the utmost care. As I turned in at my gate, over the cattle grid I had had installed, I thought I saw a movement in the shadows but drove on up to the house without stopping. At the garage I got out of the car and as I did so seemed to hear a faint noise, like a baby, and so I pulled my hat firmly onto my head and taking a torch from the car walked back towards the gate. I clicked on the beam and searched the shadows. Near the gate I saw the torchlight reflected in two blue eyes. Moving the beam slightly I made out the rain-drenched form of a kitten. I picked it up, and tucked it into the front of my coat while I swung the beam round the immediate area. Then satisfied that the kitten was alone walked quickly back to the cottage. Pausing only to pick up a tea towel that Mrs. Weston had left drying on the kitchen radiator gently started to dry what proved to be a young Tom. When that was done I took another clean tea towel from a drawer and placed it in an empty mushroom basket. 
I placed the kitten in the basket and put it on the floor by the stove where he would be warm and out of any drafts. By the time I had removed my coat the little cat was fast asleep. I debated waking him up to feed him but decided, on balance, that he probably needed his sleep. Making a cup of tea I sat down at the table and watched the gentle rise and fall of his chest. I must have fallen asleep in my chair, because I woke with the dawn light, stiff and sore, but with a feeling of happiness. He was still sleeping, but I looked at him he opened one eye, looked at me for a second then rolled over onto his back and commenced to purr. I got a very clear message, I am home. I have arrived. He stood up in his makeshift bed, stretched and the faint meow he made told me he was hungry. So I set to and warmed some milk and crumbled some bread into it. He fell on it, ate the lot, then returned to his bed and went back to sleep. I sat down again in my chair and looked at him. I was still there when Mrs. Weston arrived. She walked into the kitchen and gazed down at the mushroom basket and said, I see you found a kitten then, sir. No, I replied. I think it's more accurate to say he found me. I told her the story and while I did so she picked him up and hugged him. I could see that he was very happy and he was purring fit to bust. He needs things, she said as she gently placed him back into his box. A good bed, a blanket, toys, his own bowl and, of course kitten and cat food. What has he had to eat? I told her and with an exasperated cry of oh no, 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 she turned and sped for the pantry, returning with a cold cut of beef. She carved off a kitten-sized helping and then cut this into small pieces which she put on a saucer and placed just in front of his bed. As it rattled on the floor he seemed to shoot out of the box and falling on the meat soon devoured it all. I turned to her and said, why bother with cat food, why not get a shotgun for the field? She spun round and faced me. Don't talk like that, not ever again, it can only lead to trouble. Why? How? I asked. He has shown us his gentle side. Someday he'll show the other, but not to us. Please don't startle him. Good God woman he's a kitten. Not the kitten, sir. My family's tradition is that some months before the end Wolcott tried to shoot Kathkin, right out in the lane, but he survived with minor injuries through the grace of God. Since then he's been a bit unpredictable when people have shot on this land. She paused for a moment and then said more gently, can I bring someone to see the kitten, this afternoon? Yes, of course you can. But who? Holly, my niece. I didn't know you had a niece? I asked curiously. No, there are a lot of things you do not know and the three of us will have to help you understand, she replied somewhat cryptically. The three of you? She did not answer, but looked at me pityingly. The kitten sat up and looked at me and I swear that he winked one little blue eye. He then went back to sleep, but it seemed to me that I knew that wink. A little later Mrs. Weston left to buy the things she said we needed. I took myself out to the orchard with the kitten in his basket. I sat on a garden seat and put him on the ground by my side and it was not long before he was out into the grass and playing leopard in the bush, leaping, twisting, rolling and really enjoying himself. It occurred to me that he had grown in the few hours he had been with me, but I dismissed that as pure imagination. I was still watching him when a quiet voice spoke behind me. Hello, I've come to see the kitten. Aunt Hester said I could. I turned and looked at a young girl of about ten, who was standing behind me. I thought at once that she looked very much like Mrs. Weston, the same facial configuration, hair color and stance. More like your mother, I said to myself but that was really none of my business. She smiled at me and I said, Hello Holly, it is Holly isn't it? When she nodded I pointed to where the kitten was batting at something by his basket. She walked towards him and very gently picked him up, turning him so she was looking into his eyes. You're looking good Kathkin, 
she said gently and then there was the sound of a rumbling purr that I was sure could be heard in Dorchester, as she hugged him to her chest. Why, I asked, very intrigued, did you call him Kathkin? That's the name he's always had. Ask Aunt Hester. He won't answer to anything else. Do you mean he will come when you call him? Yes, but only if he knows and likes you. How long has this been the case? Oh, years and years. But he's only a kitten. Oh, he will grow again, you see if he doesn't. Aunt Hester says she remembers him as a kitten and I can remember playing with him when I was very small, but then he seemed to go away. I'm glad that he's back. She leant forward and placed the kitten on my knee where he settled himself down and went to sleep. He spends a lot of his time sleeping, I said smiling down at him. Yes, Aunt Hester says that's because he grows in his sleep. It was all getting too much for me. There were questions that I needed answering and Mrs. Weston was obviously the person to put them to. I had to have a long talk with her as soon as I could. I decided not to question Holly as I thought my questions might upset the child and I found I had already become too fond of her to do that. I did, however, need to know what had come to Kit Cottage and, if possible, what the future held. That evening I asked Mrs. Weston why Holly had called the kitten Kathkin and what the child had meant by her, rather obtuse comments. My family tradition is the great cat manifests himself, whenever any of the Wolcotts threaten Kin Cottage or any of Lady Hester's descendants that live in the old Wincombe Parish. He gradually becomes more solid, although the process speeds up whenever he draws blood, I started to say something but she held up a hand to stop me so I held my peace while she continued. Kathkin isn't an evil spirit, I have always believed that he is rather the embodiment of a protective, although vengeful love. I know that doesn't make sense from a human perspective, but he is a cat after all. Once Wolcott's descendant has been routed the great cat starts to slowly fade away until one day he's gone again. Every time that Kathkin manifests a ginger tom kitten arrives at the cottage and takes up residence. This cat remains when the great cat leaves and the family referred to him as Kathkin's gift although he quickly became just Kathkin. The cats were never confused by both having the same name. The presence of the normal Kathkin does help to hide the great cat. So the fact that I inherited the cottage made him my protector? Not at all you must be one of Lady Hester's descendants, making us distant kin I suppose. Really, I was intrigued and oddly pleased by this revelation. So being family saved me when Wolcott followed me home. Only in part, she smiled warmly. You did treat his remains with respect and welcomed him wholeheartedly into your life. Several times in fact, I agreed. Quite a piece to think on, I think, so if you don't mind I'll get on with supper. The following morning the vicar called again, he seemed to be excited. I was on my own as Mrs. Weston was shopping and I presumed, from something she'd said, that Holly was with her. Once he found that my housekeeper wasn't present the good man relaxed so far as to accept a cup of tea from me and waited, while I made it, in my sitting room. The vicar told me that Wolcott had consulted solicitors with the purpose of getting an order granting him possession and me evicted on the grounds that he was the true owner of Kin Cottage. He is mad, I said. Yes, I know, he replied. The solicitors have made inquiries on his behalf and have told him that he doesn't have a hope. Apparently he left their chamber swearing that he would recover his own and deal with anyone who tried to stop him. He's a very dangerous man so I knew I had to warn you. What are you going to do? Nothing. Nothing? The vicar was aghast. What will you do if he comes here causing trouble? I'll appeal to his better nature. He shook his head sadly and took his leave. It had occurred to me that I could put my trust in Kathkin. However, mere prudence, suggested that I put Holly's words to the test. I went to the rose bush where the cat was buried, drew up to my full height and said loudly, Kathkin. Kathkin can you hear me? 
I think I'm going to need help against your old enemy Wolcott. For a while nothing happened, and then there was the sound of a purr and a pressure on my leg. I looked down and there he was, looking very solid. Not as solid as the kitten who was standing at his side, like father and son I thought as I looked at them. They both stared back and then to my utter delight they both winked at me. I took that to mean that all was in hand and I could relax and await events. I did, however, keep a careful watch on things and in this I was lucky. Woolcott was so disliked that people, even strangers, took my part and when one night at the Duke he announced a plan to invade my property with a spade and his dog, chase me out and then search for his treasure the news ran swiftly to me. The vicar called the following morning to warn me and also said he had warned the police. That did cause me some concern as I was sure that Cathkin would not want the police present when he dealt with Woolcott. Mrs. Weston, however, pointed out that having independent witnesses to a mad attack on me and, or, my property might get Woolcott put away for a long time without Cathkin having to act. He was, all things considered, still a cat and likely to take the easiest option. As it turned out the threatened attack did not come, something else, however, happened instead. It came to my notice that Mrs. Weston was being threatened, and with her, Holly. Notes were being put through her letterbox, crude and ill-written but full of menace, threatening the safety of herself and the child. She had gone to the police who, although sympathetic, said they could do little while the only evidence was just the notes to go on and in any event, they asked, who would do such a thing? She told me that she replied without hesitation, Wolcott. The police had said that while it was known that Wolcott was a hard case it was also known that his quarrel was with me and not her. Most definitely not with a little girl who was not involved in his grievance. No they needed something more definite and substantial before they could act. Bring us evidence, they said, and he will be dealt with and on this note they ended the interview and she came to me in despair. She was clearly very frightened and her anguished concern for Holly was obvious. She had to have a safe shelter and I did not want to cause her any problems so I put it to her that if she wanted to change her status to a residential housekeeper she and Holly could live with me. I had intended to build an extension to the house anyway and I did not doubt that my builder friend Hubbard could do it splendidly. We were in the kitchen so she made a pot of tea and we sat and talked it over. At last she agreed and I at once telephoned Hubbard. I asked him to call on me as soon as convenient. Hubbard arrived later that afternoon. He seemed to know just how serious Mrs. Weston's position was and he agreed to put up a simple extension to the kitchen end of the cottage that backed onto a fairly smooth piece of ground. He said he would start on the plans the following day and start building as soon as the council approved them. Until then Mrs. Weston would have my spare bedroom while Holly could use a camp bed in my study. As I could not leave Mrs. Weston and Holly alone I ran them home for their overnight things and other necessities. On the way back to Kim Cottage, Holly asked her aunt if she could have a puppy. On being asked why she said the dog would be a friend for the kitten. When Mrs. Weston told her to ask me, I gladly gave my assent. Within a couple of days a black Labrador Collie Cross puppy was installed. He rapidly became firm friends with the kitten and Holly named him Bo. When I asked her why Holly told me that he was going to be a very handsome dog and deserved a fitting name. The three of them became inseparable and the puppy followed where the kitten led. They ate from the same bowl and played together all the time. The puppy was also aware of the older Cathkin, who accepted him in his turn. Hubbard got the extension finished in record time and Mrs. Weston moved Holly and herself into their new rooms. There were a few jobs left to complete and it was while Hubbard was clearing the ground for a path to the new side door that the great discovery was made. It was a simple slab of stone, about six foot by four, lying just under the turf. When Hubbard cleared it he found that it was part of a paved yard, or perhaps a floor, about sixty foot square when it was fully uncovered. The last stone, furthest from the cottage, had a recessed ring and was obviously meant to be lifted. 
I was all for doing this at once but Hubbard argued against it. I think, said he, this looks important. Let's get the vicar here. He is the local historian and may have some valuable insights. This we did and after a hard struggle the slab came up revealing a flight of stone steps leading down to a large vault. It was dark and the air was dry and cold, but we were all keen to know what was down there. So lighting our torches I followed the vicar down the old stairs. I thought that it was appropriate that he went first. At the foot of the steps he stopped and shone the light around and I clearly heard his gasp of excitement. I stopped suddenly when I saw what was caught in his beam. The room was quite large with the barrel vaulting often found in the cellars of Norman buildings. There were several old chests against the far wall and propped up against them was the skeleton of a woman dressed in what looked like the remains of 17th century dress. It was obvious that her right leg had been badly broken and I could also see that there was a depressed fracture to her forehead. On the ground by her hand was a candlestick and what I took to be a tinder box. Lady Hester? I asked needlessly. Well at least we know why she never reached Cromwell. The vicar agreed with me that it most probably was Lady Hester's corpse but persuaded me that we should touch nothing, and call in the police and the county archaeologist. I agreed, with some reluctance, and within an hour a constable was ensconced in my kitchen, where he could watch the now closed slab. The county archaeologist was not available till the next day and the police had agreed that their doctor would, as a matter of routine, examine the remains at the same time. All stuff and nonsense of course, the police constable confided to Mrs. Weston when she passed him a mug of tea. Everyone knows that isn't a recent corpse, but until the powers that be have satisfied themselves about the obvious, someone like me has to watch the site. As the day wore on heavy clouds started building in the west and I watched the wind fitfully gusting in what my father used to call the little winds. Those gusts always presaged heavy rain and I suggested that the constable could move the kitchen table so that he had a view of the slab and then watch from the kitchen rather than the cramped dampness of his car. This suggestion was welcomed enthusiastically and I went to bed with that worthy comfortably ensconced with a thermos and a few sandwiches provided by Mrs. Weston. He had turned one of the external lights so that the slab was illuminated. There was a sense of oppression in the air that made it hard to sleep. Although I knew it was caused by the storm my more fanciful nature felt that there was a premonition of trouble and something bad was about to happen. I was still moving fitfully when my door creaked open and the older Kafkin leapt onto my bed. Although I could still faintly see lights through him he was now solid enough to be an appreciable weight when he lay down on my chest and started purring. His eyes seemed to reflect the fitful moonlight that made it through gaps in the scudding clouds. I stared into them and as I fell asleep seemed to fall into their lambent depths. My first thought was confusion. The balance of light and shade and my perspective seemed to be wrong, as that I was too low to the ground. In front of me was a striped cat's leg and paw which I knew were mine. I was obviously dreaming, an analytical part of my mind asserted, but somehow I knew that it was more than that and I believed that somehow Kafkin was showing me something important. A sharp pain stabbed into my shoulder and I realized with horror that some of the marks on my leg were blood and that I was crawling, badly injured but determined to get home. In front of me I could see the familiar gate and I pulled myself painfully to my feet to stagger home. As I did so a stick banged against me, knocking me down once more and a cruel voice laughed behind me, Wolcott's cold hard voice. A strange emotion began to fill me, well strange for a cat, but all too familiar to my more advanced human brain. Kafkin felt hate for the first time in his life. The negative emotion was suddenly washed away by a strong desire to protect his own. I was humbled by the simple strength of this dying cat's love. I gathered myself again and this time, perhaps because he was laughing so hard, I evaded the stick, which I knew had given me my death wounds, and made it to the gate. Woolcott's laugh was cut short as my mistress ran down the path and scooped me into her arms, 
shielding me from a last cruel blow of the stick that cracked over her sheltering shoulder. It's as good as dead anyway, he chuckled, leaning on his stick. Your turn will come soon witch. I promise you that your familiar will join you on your fire. He started to turn away but her voice, roughened by tears stopped him in his tracks. Wolcott, thou art the only evil creature here. You have brutally hurt a being that has shown only love to the people of this village. You have stolen everything from me, bullied my people and dispossessed them of the little they had. My cat, even now, is worth more than you, thou base rat given human form. I swear to you that thou art accursed, and if you do not this very day and publicly renounce thy sins and beg forgiveness of the Lord then your fate is sealed. I don't think so. The man hissed, quietly so that none of the villagers who had gathered could overhear him. I know Lady Hester that thou art a virtuous woman, God-fearing and kindly. Tonight you will be dragged from your cottage and burned as a witch. I will enjoy watching a flock of gullible sheep killing their only champion and protector. Once you are dead, I'll seize this cottage and find the treasure. Consider, as you wait for death, my triumph and the fact that your beliefs count for naught. Base and perjured man, Lady Hester's voice rose clarion clear over his taunting laugh. I said that you are accursed and so you are. I call on all heaven's power, on the legions of angels and the saints that you shall not prevail in your evil plans. While you or your kin persecute me and mine you will be thwarted. Love made manifest will prove a sharper sword than your corruption and evil. I found my vision darkening and, as it faded, the last thing I saw was the strength, goodness and love in Lady Hester's face. I realized that I had just experienced Kathkin's death. I woke with a start to hear his reassuring purr and started to stroke him. After a few moments my eyes again caught his and I found myself dropping back to sleep. I dreamed again, but unlike the dream before it or the ones that followed I remember no details only a sense of warmth, ease after my pain, gentle summer light and an indistinct voice speaking a language that I did not know, but felt I should. Three times the voice asked what sounded like a question and thrice I purred. All went dark again. It was still dark when Kathkin woke up again, a total absence of light, Stygian and complete. Somewhere I could hear Lady Hester calling for me and I knew I had to go to her. I was hampered by something that tangled my head and my limbs but I kicked myself free. During my struggles my head passed through something that felt like a very thick fog and I found myself looking around the cottage's loft in the faint evening light that came up under the eaves. Kathkin pulled himself from the box and looked around. I could feel that his curiosity was aroused and he wanted to investigate, but Lady Hester's faint voice, if you understand me more spiritual than physical, called to him again and he bounded away jumping down through the solid ceiling into the cottage below. He ran through the cottage, and out through the closed door into a twilight-shadowed yard. At that time the paved area, that must have predated the cottage, was surrounded by outbuildings and I remembered that it had been a small holding. Without hesitation the cat raced towards a stable and in through a half-open door. In front of me a man who looked quite like Wolcott was pushing a feed bin back towards the wall. The back of the bin dropped slightly and I realized that it must have stood over the trap door, probable fitting into some socket so that a casual push would not move it. This summation proved to be correct as Kathkin jumped past the man and down through the trap. He slashed out with his paw as he went behind the man and I echoed his frustration as the claws went straight through the leg with no damage. We landed on the stairs and I could hear the irregular and pained breathing of someone very seriously hurt. There was also a faint threnody of speech as Lady Hester mourned for her dead who could not help her in her need, leaving her to die alone in total darkness. Kathkin walked towards her and started to purr reassuringly, as he advanced his fur started to glow the light increasing steadily from a wan glow to a light reminiscent of a full moon. Lady Hester's head came up and although I had seen her skeleton the amount of blood from her head wound was shocking. I could see from her vacant expression that she was not very aware of her surroundings. 
her time was almost run. Kathkin, there was a note of incredulity in her voice as the glowing cat leaned against her. I prayed that you would come to me as I did not want to die alone. She was silent for a while and her breathing gradually became weaker and I waited for her to die, wondering why Kathkin was showing me this memory. Kathkin listened to me, her voice was suddenly stronger. I had just started down the stairs when Wolcott ran up behind me. I started to turn round but his heavy stick cracked over my head and I fell breaking my leg. I pulled myself over to the chest searching for the candle I knew was there, hoping that I could find and load poor Edward's pistol. However, he just laughed and shut the trap. Then you arrived. Kathkin I believe you have been sent back in answer to my prayers. I charge you, loyal friend, to stand guard over my family's trust and keep it from those who see it only as base gain. Her voice faded then she spoke again a mere whisper of sound now and in Latin. My knowledge of that language comes from my school days and the Catholic liturgy but I understood enough to know that she was invoking God's good grace and asking for his blessings upon Kathkin, then and in the future. Her voice stopped, and then her breathing and I knew she was dead. Once more the scene went black. Then suddenly we were standing outside the cottage in the yard but now the moon lit the cottage. A small light, a lamp or perhaps a candle was moving within the house as I could see it moving past the upstairs windows. There was a blur of motion as the cat ran towards the house. The door was open and I could see that the lock had been broken. There was some damage within the house and I could hear the susurration of angry voices in the lane outside. Kathkin jumped onto one of the wide window ledges and looked out at a small crowd of villagers, people who only a week earlier had been neighbors who had liked and respected her. Now they were an angry mob who cheated of her ritual murder wanted to burn down the cottage. A few of Wolcott's farmhands, armed with thick staves, held them back. A sudden crashing noise from above caught Kathkin's attention and we ran upstairs. I realized that it was quite unusual for a cottage of this time to have a boarded over roof space and it reflected the wealth and position of the family who had built it. The term cottage was a misnomer as it was actually a small farmhouse when everything was considered. A farm laborer was holding an orchard ladder steady as Walcott started to climb into the roof space. Kathkin gathered himself and leapt upwards and I experienced the very disconcerting sensation of jumping up through the solid ceiling. It was obvious that he was getting the hang of his altered state, although he normally ran upstairs and went through the doorways he had used in life. In the loft the big cat jumped onto his box and turned to face the lit hole in the loft floor and in the dark shape as Wolcott raised his upper torso into the loft. The man raised his lamp but the pool of light didn't illuminate the edges of the space so he came a few rungs higher, his balance becoming more precarious as the top of the orchard ladder started narrowing and he had to keep his feet on different rungs. Kathkin pulled himself to his full height and yowled. The noise echoed round the enclosed space. A noise filled with loss, despair and an implacable determination, it was the cry of a predator many times the size of the cat. Wolcott's head snapped round and I saw his eyes widen in shock then a terrified realization. At that moment Kathkin sprang forward and the man threw up his hands to protect his face and involuntarily flinched back as the cat's claws connected. He must have lost his balance because he toppled backwards and fell with a brief scream. The cat landed at the edge of the hatch and looked down. Wolcott lay, unmoving, his head twisted at an odd angle. I noticed that there were claw marks on his face and that the right sleeve of his jerkin was torn. His farmhand was crouched over him, but he looked up suddenly and saw the cat. The color drained from his face and with an inarticulate cry he turned and ran for the stairs. Kathkin leapt again and chivied the poor man down the stairs and out of the house. Each claw strike doing more damage than any ordinary, physical cat could have delivered. The man's screams and the cat's yowls had silenced the mob and every eye was on the door as the unfortunate victim ran from the door, screaming now in pain, his lower legs covered in blood-soaked rags. 
he sprinted towards the crowd for behind him an awful monster trod. Like a dam breaking first one and then the rest of the crowd took to their heels in panicked flight. I feared for the man, but Kathkin stopped in the gateway and watched his second victim vanish into the night. I woke up for the second time, my heart beating rapidly and felt the ghost cat's purring increase. I stroked him as I relaxed and reflected that I had always thought of Holy Avengers as angels in Romanesque armor with flaming swords and not as a large ginger cat who liked being stroked under his chin. Once more my eyes caught his and I watched as he closed his lids and settled down to sleep. I stroked him absently to the twin sounds of his purring and the now gentle hiss of the rain. My last conscious thought before, I fell asleep myself, was that my education seemed to be over for the night. I woke up to a sudden crash of thunder with a constricted chest and conscious of a faint, irregular and decidedly unusual banging noise. The storm was back with a vengeance and the once gentle rain was pounding on the windows. Looking down at my chest I quickly discerned the cause of my breathlessness. Although Kafkin was, as I have already said, now mostly solid, he had still partially settled into my chest as we both slept and I have always been slightly sensitive to cat hair. It was the work of a moment to lift the deeply sleeping cat off and place him on the bed. I heard the banging noise again and decided that something, the shed door perhaps, had come loose and was being slammed into its frame by the gusting wind. I eased out of bed and crossed to the window to see if I could determine the problem. It took a moment for me to fully comprehend the scene from my window. The trapdoor was lying open and a faint light was issuing from below. Moreover I could see a bundle lying near it that I realized was the policeman. Whether he was just unconscious or worse he was insensible to the severity of the storm that was battering him. Kathkin, I said loudly, we have trouble. I was surprised when the cat didn't stir. I sat on the bed again and lifted my telephone and found that the handset was dead, probably the line had been brought down during the storm, but it was obvious that I couldn't ask for any help from the police. I reached over and tickled Kathkin under the chin in the hopes that he would waken, but he didn't even stir. It was then that I realized that his breathing was very deep and slow. He wasn't just asleep, but, if it were possible, drugged into a deep unconsciousness. I quickly pulled on trousers and a rugby shirt over my pajamas and slipped my feet into the sandals I use as slippers. With one final caress of my sleeping friend, I made my way downstairs. I had some plan of waking Mrs. Weston before venturing out to check on the policeman. I intended, I think, to get him into the warmth of the kitchen if he could be moved before seeing if I could use his radio. It occurred to me that if I could find the police car's keys I could drive it so that it was blocking the trapdoor, imprisoning anyone who was in the vault. I had no intention whatsoever of going down into that old cellar. Someone had been driven by the lure of treasure into going down there and obviously wanted to do it before the county archaeologist had any chance of cataloging the find. One name sprang to mind and I did not want to face Wolcott in that subterranean chamber. Especially if he had already, and I thought it likely, attacked a policeman. I remembered his weighted stick and worried about cracked skulls. Gathering my resolution to me I left my room and, and headed downstairs. I didn't turn the lights on as I did not want to give any watcher warning that I'd woken. In the hall I pulled on my raincoat and almost as, an afterthought, I picked up a wide-brimmed hat, not only would it keep the rain from my eyes but would give my head some protection. The kitchen door was closed, which was unusual as I liked the cats to be able to wander at night. The police officer had undoubtedly closed it to keep from waking us. I was just about to open it when I became aware of a strange, cloying and distinctly unpleasant odor. There was also a hint of smoke so, believing that something was smoldering, I cautiously felt the door to see if it was hot. The wood was cold and I cautiously opened the door. The smell instantly became stronger and I could see a faint light such as a candle would cast. My vision blurred and I felt myself stagger as I was overcome with sleepiness. Gas, I thought, 
clapping my handkerchief to my nose. The outside door was open although it was irregularly being slammed by the wind, explaining the banging noise I'd heard. I stumbled over to it and outside into the rain, drawing deep breaths of the rain-laden air. Almost instantly I felt better and could see that the door wasn't latching because the lock had been broken. Hoping to locate the source of the gas I looked through the kitchen window. On the table was a horrific object. What looked like a severed human hand was holding a dark candle, the light flickering in the breeze but never blowing out. I'd heard of this item, it was known as a hand of glory and according to folklore it was used by burglars, the story being that while the candle burnt the legitimate occupants of the house would sleep deeply, insensible even to rings being cut from their hands. Apparently they actually existed and could affect ghost cats as well. It occurred to me that only my breathlessness had woken me. Looking round I spied an old paint tin that one of Hubbard's men had left outside. It was partially full of rain water and snatching it up I took a deep breath and ran back into the kitchen. I grabbed a tea towel off its peg and used it to pick up the hand and drop the lot into the paint can. Twisting on my heel I threw the tin and all out through the door. Mrs. Weston, I thought, and pausing only to grab a heavy torch from its drawer, went through to the new bedrooms. They were both empty although the bedclothes were disarranged. On Holly's bed the puppy and the kitten were curled up together and I was glad to see that their sleep was normal. I had just returned the hall intending to slip out of the front door so I could approach the police officer from the side of the house, when an outraged yowl came from my bedroom. I shone the torch up the stairs as Kathkin appeared shaking his head slightly as if to clear a headache. He flowed down the staircase, the utter exemplar of controlled fury and as he came he started to glow. It was very faint at first but rapidly increased enough so that I could see my immediate surroundings without needing to switch on the torch. I walked towards the door and opening it went out into the storm. Kathkin walked about five feet in front of me matching his pace to mine in a faint, and admittedly craven, hope that he would deal with our visitors on his own was dispelled. What I remember most about that short walk isn't the growing apprehension or even my heightened sensitivity but the fact that I was walking through cold puddles wearing rather flimsy sandals. We reached the police officer and I knelt beside him. He was deeply unconscious but his breathing was regular. In the cat light I could see that the skin on the right hand side of his head was broken and his hair was darkened with blood. Gently I searched him looking for his car keys but was unsuccessful. I went over to the car hoping that the keys were in it but the doors were locked. I couldn't call for help, I didn't like leaving the policeman lying where he was even though I knew he risked catching pneumonia at least, but I was more worried about Mrs. Weston and Holly. Clutching my torch firmly I crept towards the trapdoor, keeping low so I would not be silhouetted against the cloud-racked sky, although I thought that Wolcott, if that was indeed our visitor, would have lost his night vision. Search harder. Wolcott's voice seemed to come from almost directly below me. It was also quite shocking in its coldness. I think you know what my treasure is and probably where she hid it. He hissed the she with such vehemence that I knew he was talking about Lady Hester. I heard an indistinct but defiant response which I thought was Mrs. Weston. My ancestor brought her to bay in this very place, Wolcott's voice was tinged with such a cold hard cruelty that I knew that none of us would survive the night if he had his way. Unfortunately he died before he could find his property. Ironically it seems that he accidentally hid this vault from his own son. If there is a treasure, which I doubt, it wouldn't belong to you. I warn you though that such a prize would be guarded by a potent curse. Mrs. Weston had raised her voice and although I could hear her fear I was also aware of her deep contempt for the bully who was compelling her cooperation. Shut up and get back to work. Your family may have scared off the simple with your tales of curses, but I know better. What about Grimalkin then? Mrs. Weston used the name the villagers had given the cat and I remembered that names have power. He made you run away earlier didn't he, you and your ill-bred cur. I've done for him, Wolcott snapped back. 
I rode him onto the candle so he is bound by the glory's spell and won't awaken till dawn. Once I have my treasure I will banish your tame demon once and for all. Poor fool, meddling with things that were best left in the past, her voice dripped with scorn and I heard the sound of a wooden lid hitting the wall. My housekeeper was obviously over by the chests. Be quiet, you old hag and just get back to work. Remember I left your niece tied up and gagged in one of my ditches. I reckon that in about an hour the water will have risen sufficiently for her to start drowning. Arista looked down through the hatch and saw Wolcott sitting on one of the lower steps, a hurricane lamp beside him and a shotgun over his knee. Over by the far wall Mrs. Weston was kneeling by one of the chests. In front of her was a wooden box and as I watched she lifted something I thought was a pewter plate out of the chest and placed it in the box. Wolcott was obviously prepared to take everything he thought might have some value. He waved his shotgun at her threateningly. Keep going, Holly hasn't any time to waste you know. That was the last chest you fool. There isn't any treasure as I've already told you, just a few minor antiques, undoubtedly placed down here for safekeeping during the Civil War. Her voice was placating. You've risked everything for nothing but if you release Holly now I swear that neither of us will say anything and you can leave here without the police getting involved. I hit a policeman, he snarled. I doubt that you can explain that away. Place a piece of wood by him and by the time I've washed the wound everyone will accept that he was hit by storm debris, her voice was that of a caring aunt. This way nobody wins, but equally important neither of us loses badly either. I saw his shoulders slump slightly as he seemed to accept the inevitable and a faint smile of relief flickered across her face. This was going to be easier than I'd expected. I started to edge back from the trapdoor. It was my intention to retrieve the hand of glory and hide it as another lever to use against him, when I came to a sudden stop. I'm a fool. His savage shout of anger promised hurt for someone. The tales say that your accursed ancestress had a priest's hole where traveling papists could hide and rest. I know it isn't at the farm, because we've all looked over the years so it must be here. I've studied the old maps of this village and the trapdoor would have opened into the stables. Bit too easy to find I'd have thought so this cellar isn't the priest's bolt hole. It seems to me that a hidden chamber would be just the place to hide a great treasure. Now it isn't in the cottage as I've been all over it, even knocked a few holes in the walls where they sounded hollow. Mrs. Weston tried to pour scorn on this idea, but I knew that Wolcott was convinced and he would do anything to seize the treasure that had been his family's obsession for centuries. Where is it? He shouted silently and there was an explosion as the shotgun discharged. Almost immediately there was a strange rattling noise and I heard Mr. Weston gasp, more in outrage than fear. His voice continued. You saw what the shot did to the witch's bones. Unless you show me the hidden chamber, I'll pepper your legs. Then fetch a sledgehammer and find it myself. There isn't any such secret room. Open it. He voice was almost conversational. I will fire. Ten, nine, eight, sev. I threw my torch at the hurricane lamp and charged, screaming loudly, down the stairs. Hoping that sudden darkness, loud noise and an unexpected attack would allow me to overcome Wolcott at least long enough for Mrs. Weston and myself to escape. Three things happened almost simultaneously. Wolcott twisted his torso round and snapped a shot off at me. My sandal slipped on the smooth wet stone and I fell onto my back, painfully, as the shot cloud passed over me and the great cat voiced a yelling war cry and, now glowing brighter than ever, jumped through the hatch, touched the stairs by my head and then sprang again, this time at his enemy's face. My torch, rather predictably, missed the lamp and then rolled a few feet into the cellar and I slid a few more steps down before I could gather my feet under me and stand. The scene in that cellar was nightmarish. Woolcott was lurching round as he tried to pull the large cat from his face and head. His attempts to free himself, 
however, only served to pull the cat's front claws more deeply into his scalp, while Kafkin's rear claws and teeth were doing terrible damage to his face. I was about to help the cat when Wolcott suddenly lowered his head and charged at the nearest wall, hoping I think to crush the cat in the impact. At the last moment Kafkin pulled himself over the man's head and ran down his back. There was a solid thud and Wolcott fell bonelessly to the floor. I quickly checked him out, he was breathing but was very deeply unconscious. I was for a moment at a loss to know what to do, but Mrs. Weston came to my rescue. If you could pick up the lantern on your way up the stairs we can close the trap and summon help. She waved my torch that she had just picked up. I don't think he's going anywhere for a while, and if he wakes up before help comes it will be to total darkness. What about Holly? I asked. Shouldn't we try to wake him and find out where she is? I doubt that he'll be making any sense and being who he is would he actually tell us? I followed her up the stairs as she spoke. If we call for help we should be able to search the drainage ditches in time, if of course that's where she is and he wasn't making up her predicament to force me to cooperate. I looked around from the top of the stairs and saw Kafkin prod at Wolcott with his paw, as a cat will tap at something to see if it will move. He then turned his back on the body, pretended to kick earth at it then followed me up the stairs, the luminance already fading from his coat. As it happened we didn't have to call for help. We were both crouched by the police officer discussing how we could carry him into the house without causing any further harm when a car swept into the drive. Without hesitation I sprinted round the house and arrived just as a police car came to a stop. It was the sergeant with another officer who was due to relieve Constable Davis, I felt strangely guilty that I hadn't remembered his name. The sergeant had assumed that Constable Davis's failure to report in had been due to the storm and was horrified to learn that his man had been lying insensible in the rain while he, himself, had been safe and warm at the station. After seeing the downed officer the sergeant took over. A quiet and very efficient leader, he called for backup, reported Holly's disappearance and our worries and with the aid of a blanket the four of us carried Constable Davis carefully into the cottage where we placed him on Mrs. Weston's bed, her room not only was the closest but it had French windows that made things easier. While he was busy organizing everything I quickly told Mrs. Weston about the hand of glory and she told me not to say anything about it. The following day we found it in the paint tin wedged into place by the tea towel. While we were dealing with the constable Davis I noticed Kathkin rub foreheads with Bo before the puppy vanished into the storm with his nose pressed to the ground. I would have sworn that it was impossible for any animal to follow a scent in that weather but a few minutes later his excited barking led us to a culvert less than a hundred yards down the lane. Holy was found in time, but barely, and suffered several months of illness before she fully recovered. Woolcott lay insensible, handcuffed to a hospital bed, for three days before he woke and claimed to have no memory of the night's events. If this was true or just a ruse to escape the consequences of his actions turned out to be of no consequence. Holly had quickly woken when Woolcott carried her from the cottage and her screams had caused him to gag her. She could testify that he had taken her and had intended her to die in the ditch, indeed, from what Woolcott had said to her, once he had found his treasure he had intended to knock Mrs. Weston out and put her back in her bed and the constable back into the kitchen before torching the cottage. That was, of course, hearsay but when the police searched his clothes they found Constable Davis's car keys in his pocket and there had been several cans of paraffin in Wolcott's car which had been parked nearby. Constable Davis had seen a figure near the trapdoor and had gone out to challenge the intruder. The man had apologized for trespassing. Claiming that he had been overcome by curiosity and had only wanted a quick look. Constable Davis had been put at his ease by the man's manner and was taken off guard when he was attacked. By a stroke of good luck the officer had recognized his attacker as Wolcott. The trial was relatively short, as Wolcott persisted in claiming amnesia, but he was found guilty. 
Sentencing was, however, deferred for psychiatric reports. The upshot was that he was determined to be criminally insane and that he was, and would continue to be a real danger to those people he felt had crossed him. He was sent to a prison hospital on an indeterminate sentence. There are a lot of unanswered questions, but Mrs. Weston has started to tell me more of the local stories about the cottage and its people. The one that interests me most is simple. Why if Wolcott has been defeated is the great cat Kathkin happily sleeping on my desk as I finish this account? Copyright 2019 Robert War. All original rights reserved. Music